Amen. And you may be seated. And open your Bibles again, if you would, to Ephesians chapter uh, 5. You know, the last couple of weeks, we have been addressing um, this subject of biblical manhood. And uh, in the beginning of our study, we said that um, the Bible, or excuse, the world, um, really defines manhood in many different ways of what a man is supposed to look like, how he's supposed to dress, how he's supposed to act, his role within the family. But the truth of the matter is, for the born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the only real care that he has is what does God think about manhood? What does God say about it? How does God define what a man ultimately should be? And so as believers, that's what we try to seek out. And there's only really one place to be able to find that information out, and that is through his written word of God. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking in the word of God, specifically in the beginning of the book of Genesis, to find out exactly what God had called us to be. The very first week, the goal of that week was this. I was trying to lay a foundation to give us a biblical conviction so that when we left here that day, that each and every person uh, that was here would truly understand that the primary role that God had given a man within the home was to lead his family in a God-glorifying direction. That means every part of his home. That means in what he teaches his children and with his wife and in their finances and how they live and, and, uh, and how, uh, what they listen to and what they watch, everything should be directed for the purpose of glorifying God within the home. And that's the primary, not the only, but the primary responsibility for the man. Last week, we saw that even though that's his primary role, that it's also going to be the most difficult thing we've ever done. And the reason for that difficulty is because of the curse, something that happened in the book of Genesis when sin entered in and their fall and humanity fell. God judged mankind, men and women, and he placed a curse on them, which makes it nearly impossible for them to really live according to the roles that God had originally created them to live with and, and to carry out. But the good news is, is the good news of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith completed in the completed work of Jesus Christ, God has recreated them from the inside out. He, they are now new creatures in Christ, giving them now the power to be able to live out the role that God had originally intended. With that said, even though he's been given the ability to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will forever have to fight each and every day against his flesh, to die to flesh, to be all that God has called him to be. Now, with all that said, with the very first week, understanding that God had, we, we had very clear indication of what the role of man is to lead his family, and secondly, to know that it's going to be the most difficult thing he has ever done, even though he can do it because of the work of Jesus Christ, the one question really remains is this, what does that look like? How do we do it? What does it actually look like when a man and a woman are in a home and he's actually being the spiritual leader? Now, let me suggest something to you this morning. This morning is where I'm going to give you a lot more application than we've given in the first and second week. We've tried to live a we try to lay a, a theological foundation, biblical foundation of why we ought to do what we ought to do. And today what we want to do is we want to see specifically how we're supposed to do this. And fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul has given us a very clear picture of how this leadership looks within the home right here in Ephesians chapter 5. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, at first, just kind of bring you through some things that he highlights. And then at the end of this particular passage, we're going to camp out and really begin to work through some practical ways to be the leader within your home. The first thing that Paul does here is this. He gives a call to return to God, to the God-given roles of a man and a woman. In other words, he's writing to a group of believers here at Ephesus, and basically what he says is, listen, you're a believer in Jesus Christ now. You've been recreated, regenerated. You need to do things God's way. And one of the ways to do that is in the area of the home. He says, when you are lost, He says that those roles were marred by sin. There was chaos within the home. But when you give your life to Christ, when he saves you, when he redeems you, when he regenerates you, he goes, now I want you to return to God's original purpose and original roles that he had established back in the beginning. Men, I want you to lead. And here, ladies, I want you to be his helper. And that's what he begins with here. He begins with the woman, which is very interesting. Because what he tells her to, he says, listen, you need to embrace and accept and humble yourself and receive the original role that God had given you as a helper to your husband. He says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, guys, I want to be very clear on something. When I read that sentence, there is turmoil going on in the heart of your wife and in the soul of your wife. There's a myriad of emotions that are saturating her very soul and her heart, and there are two specific emotions that rise above all the rest, and they're in opposition to each other. The first emotion that she begins, that begins to well up, if she's a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, is hope, is hope. The hope is placed there by God alone. When he saved her, he placed in her a desire to be that woman of God that God had called her to be, to follow the leadership of her husband. It's there if she's truly been redeemed. The fear comes, though, not from God, but from you and from me. And the reason that she feels fearful is because she knows you, and my wife knows me. And she knows me as the imperfect, sinful, and oftentimes very selfish individual that I am and that you are. And so for her to do what God has called her to do, there's a sense of fear, even though her true self wants to do it. She's in fear because she knows that her position is a place of vulnerability. She knows that basically what she's doing is she's coming and she's saying, okay, honey, we're going to follow your leadership And the fear that she has is what many of us often do is that we are going to abuse and misuse the authority that God has given us for our own selfish gain, simply to get what we ultimately want. And so what's interesting is he calls to return to the God-given roles, but it's almost as though Paul knows very well what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people whom he's right into the, the anguish that the wife, that the women are feeling inside in the, in, in, in the complexity of what's going on in the mind of the man. And so what he does is he moves from a call to return to, God's, to the God-given role to a clarification of God-given roles. And so what he says is he moves on and he says in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and himself is savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what he does is he gives them an example of what kind of leadership and what kind of submission this is to be. It, what, and what it does is, he, and basically he says, you're supposed to follow just in the same way that you follow Christ. 
And your husband is to be seeking to lead you the same way that Christ leads you and loves you and is patient with you. So what this begins to do is in her heart of hearts, she begins to become encouraged. She begins to become comforted. Because in her, she's been redeemed. She knows what it's like to follow Jesus. She knows what it's like to follow, uh, submit to his authority. So she sits back and goes, I can do that. Is that what it looks like? And so when my husband provides that, that, that that's my role, I, I, I can do that. I, I do that with Jesus. And for the men, what it does is it begins to clarify and correct what it actually means to lead his home. And what we find in this is this, is that he not only speaks of a call to return to God-given roles and gives a clarification of, man's God, or, or, of their God-given roles, but he also speaks of a cost to God-given roles. The cost we already talked about for the wife. The wife is, is a very difficult position. Her position is called to be vulnerable to, to a sinful, often selfish man. That's hard. That's, that's a huge cost in and of itself. But for man, it's a different cost. And the cost for a man to lead the way that he should do is this. It costs him his life. It costs him his life. The Bible says, notice in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We know we're supposed to lead like him. What is it going to take? And he says, and he gave himself up for her. What does it mean he gave himself up for her? Well, he physically, he physically, willingly died for the betterment and the well-being of his bride, the church. So men, here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you have to die for your wife. Now, does that mean physically die? Well, I think it certainly includes that. I believe if it says, hey, if you got an opportunity to save the life of your wife by, 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 your wife, by you giving up your life, then I think you do that. But I don't think that's primarily what he has in mind here. What I think what he has in mind is, is, is you and I meant dying to our selfishness, dying to our self-centeredness, dying to our wants and our desires, those things that we often place above our, our wife's desires and her wants, and to each and every day die to that. Why? So that we can pick up her rights, we can pick up her wants, we can pick up her needs, and we can focus on this, and at great expense to ourselves we can make sure that those needs and those wants are met. Does that make sense? And so I believe that that's where he's leading in this and what he's, he's sharing us with. And so what it does is when he gives this picture of leadership, it corrects all of those false notions that we've seen with our own eyes. It p- completely puts away any kind of idea of a man dominating a woman within the relationship. It completely strips away any kind of idea of abuse of power and authority for their own selfish gain. Instead, this is servant leadership. That's what it is. It's leading her by serving her for her own good need at a maximum expense, even to myself. When Jesus came, Jesus said in in the book of Mark, he says, I came to serve and not to be served. So do we see how clear how he's clarifying this and he's showing the cost? He says, look, the kind of leadership that you have is for you to give your very life and die every day for the well-being of your wife. That's what it looks like. Now, this servant leadership has two identifiable marks to it. Two identifiable marks to what servant leadership says. So you, you got the foundation. Now let's begin to go even deeper and start to see where the rubber really meets the road here. What does this actually look like? What, are we, what is, what is um, Paul specifically speaking of? And here he gives specifically two uh, different uh, identifiable marks. The first mark is initiative, is initiative. 
If men, if you are going to serve your wives as a servant leader, you must first learn to take the initiative within your family. Now you say, where do we see that? Well, it says God gave himself up for her. My question is, why did Jesus Christ give his life for the church? Because he owed the church something? Because he owed you something? Was it ultimately because that you and I uh, did something so wonderful to him and so nice to the Lord Jesus Christ and were so righteous that Jesus said, you know what, you guys deserve this. I'm gonna give my life for you and save you and return for what you've done for me. No, it wasn't a reward. You know what it was? It was grace. It was grace that Jesus went to that cross. You know why? Because you and I were undeserving of him saving us. And not only were you and I undeserving of him saving us, we weren't coming after him. We weren't trying to find him. That's what you hear a lot of people. A lot of people talk about seekers. But the Bible says that no man seeks after God. God seeks after man. It's not Jesus who's lost. It's we who are lost. And notice this. Even when Jesus began to call us, when he began to draw us for salvation, for us to repent of our sin and place our faith in him, guess what we were doing in the meantime? We weren't sitting there going, yeah, I'll run to Jesus. We're running as far and as fast away from him as we possibly could. And Jesus kept on running after us. And when he grabbed a hold of us, he turned us and he looked and he revealed his glory to us. And you know what we found? We found that he was absolutely irresistible. His grace and his mercy and his love that he had shown for us. He looked into us and we accepted him and we received him as Lord and Savior because of his irresistible beauty and his grace and his love for us. And it wasn't irresistible because he was making us receive him. It was irresistible because we couldn't help but to receive him. You got that? And so the Bible teaches that, that Jesus, though, in all of this, he took the initiative. He went after and the application is simply this, men, you must, like Christ, take the initiative to serve your wife. You've got to take the initiative. Now, the reason I say this is I, I want you to understand, much like us, there is going to possibly be your wife or your children that don't like this idea. Okay? Because the truth is, many of you have not been in the habit of leading spiritually in your home. And so when all of a sudden your kids are 14, 15 years old, and all of a sudden you said, hey, I'm going to be the leader. Guess who was the leader before that? Themselves. Now what you're doing is you're coming and saying, hey, listen, we're going to set the boundaries. We're going to set the precedence for this home, and I'm going to lead you guys spiritually. Men, you might, be, you might be married to a lost wife. You might be married to lost children. But here's the deal. As difficult as that is going to be, you must at all costs take the initiative to be that leader that God has called you to be. But here's where I think a lot of the men are at. I don't think most of y'all's wife are sitting there and going, man, I hope he doesn't hear this message. I hope he doesn't become the spiritual leader in our home. What I believe the majority of the redeemed women are saying in this place is, dear Jesus, let him get a hold of this. Because the truth is, is many of our ladies have been the spiritual leader of their home because they've had to. Because they've had to. You guys might even be at church because your wife has set that precedent. She's pleaded with you, please, can we go to church? Can we take the children to church? Okay, we'll come. She's the one that does everything, takes care of everything, makes sure that we could just get here. If there's going to be prayer in the home, it's because the wife sits there and says, hey, guys, let's gather together and pray for this. If there's going to be the reading of the word of God within the home, guess what? It's going to be the wife that sits there, and the wife is ultimately going to say, hey, let's get together, and let's have some Bible study together, right? And so, but men, listen, understand something. 
that puts your wife in such an awkward position. She is to come alongside and help and to teach her children the truths of the word of God, but she's not supposed to be taking the initiative and to be able to set the direction of the home. That's you. And so what happens is because of your lack of leadership, she's sitting there and her soul feels anguish because she's, she's in a role that she knows is not her own. And so in anguish, she's sitting there saying, man, I wish my husband would step up. Man, I wish my, my husband would do this. If you want to just, just, this is next week, blow your wife's mind. And sit there, when you're gathered around, just sit there and say, guys, can we just spend a little bit of time in prayer? And do you know what that's going to be like for your wife? It's going to be like honey to the soul. I know that you're thinking about all the things that you can buy her for Valentine's Day, for Christmas, for all these other kinds of things. But for most godly women, for a husband just to sit there and say, tonight, guys, I just want to go ahead and lead you in a little bit of, of scripture. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, talk to you about it, and then we're just going to go ahead and we're just going to pray together. Your wife's heart will be filled like you can never imagine. She will love you like never before. And here's the amazing part about that. When, when, when she sits out and she does that, you don't have to do this completely on your own, but you have to set the precedence. She's there to be able to help you. Maybe you need to go to her and go, okay, now where do I start? But who set the precedence? You did. It's the same thing with our home. Uh, oftentimes we, we, we make a habit of coming together. My, 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 my wife teaches them the word of God in the day as they're, uh, through school. And then at night we get together, we open up the word, we begin to teach. I set the precedence. But here's what happens. I can't always be there at dinner time. Sometimes we're visiting or we're sharing the gospel with somebody. But guess what my responsibility is? To call up, to pick up the phone, to call my wife and say, Honey, listen, I'm not going to be able to make it back for it quiet time with our family or, or devotion time and worship with our family. Do you mind doing this? Do you mind leading? Here's where I left off in the other book. Do you mind doing it? And my wife never sits there and goes, man, I wish you'd get your lazy self up. She sits there and says, I would love to. I would love to. But let me ask you, who's leading? Who's leading? Who's taking the initiative? I'm taking the initiative. And God has called the same exact thing for you, man, to take the initiative in the home and say, just like Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what God's called you to. So the first thing it takes is we must take the initiative. The second thing it takes is that we must be intentional. Now, there's a, let me draw the distinction between this. It's one thing for men to stand up and to sit there and go, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and be the spiritual leader of our home. And then they get all excited about a message or a sermon series, and they walk around going, we need to be leaders. We need to be leaders. Tell the kids, hey, I'm a leader. Uh, wife, I'm a leader. But guess what? Until he becomes intentional about his leading and makes plans and takes steps to lead, guess what? He's not a real leader. All those intentions do absolutely no good. He's got to put feet to that work. He's actually got to think about and plan, how am I going to lay this out? How am I going to ultimately do this? And we see that this is exactly what Christ did. Christ was intentional, and specifically, he was intentional in the protection of his church. Now, notice, if you will, in the word of God, he says in verse 28, after he says, gave himself up for her, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. What is he doing? He's being intentional about protecting his church. Now, the question is this, what did the church need to be protected from? Very simply, you and I and all people need to be protected from the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have told our creator who has created us out of his own goodness. We have told him, you know what? Forget you. I'm not going to do things your way. I'm going to do things my way. And because of that rebellion in God's righteous justice that he always does everything right, he has condemned you and I and all men and all people who are under sin that the wrath of God is storing up against them for a day called judgment, for a day of judgment, one day in the future. And the only thing is, is without you and I even knowing it, we're living this life, doing our own thing in rebellion, and the whole time, the righteous wrath of God is being built up and built up and built up, and the only thing that's holding it back from washing us away into a fiery eternal hell is the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering God is holding back that judgment. And so what happens is you and I are going about our own way, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus did something. The way that he protected us is he ended up going to the cross. Now, notice this. He took steps. This was intentional. He didn't just declare from the, before the foundations of the earth that he was going to be Savior. He actually put feet to the plan. What did he do? First of all, he stepped down from glory. He took his glory, and he didn't get rid of it, but he moved it aside for a short period of time to take on the form of man, to come and to live in human form on the earth, to be, to, to, to be tempted in every way, yet to sin not. And then he walked and marked himself in the cross to Mount Calvary where he gave himself up willingly to die. He didn't just say that he was going to save them. Guess what he did? He planned on it and he fulfilled and he was intentional about how he would save them. So when he was on that cross, all of that righteous wrath of God that was poured, that, that was storing up for us, all of a sudden his long suffering broke at that point. It came washing over Jesus on that cross and guess what? All of that wrath was satisfied. And God took you and I and began through the shedding of his blood. He, make you, he made you holy. He made me holy. He made you pure. He made me pure. And now we can have a right relationship with God. And Jesus' work continues in you and me every other, in every single day. Not only from him saving us, but also sanctifying us. That is that each and every day he is preparing us, making us more like him, so that one day he can present us holy and without any blemish. So you sit back and say, well, what in the world is, how in the world does all that apply to me? Well, very simply, in the same exact way in which he was intentional to come after and to protect us, we are to be intentional men, not only sit back and make the decision to, but make regular steps every single day to protect our families in two ways, both physically and spiritually. Now, physically, how are we to protect our families? Well, I think there's just some common things. You're walking down the street with your wife on the, uh, uh, on the uh, sidewalk. And uh, you men, I, and this might be new to you, but you should be standing on the outside next to and closest to the cars. Got that? All right? So you take that position. It's a natural position for you. Uh, how about this? How about you're crossing the road to get to the other side, right? And you're sitting there, and here's your wife, and, and you're about to go. Well, you grab your, your wife's uh, hand. In one hand, this is what my wife and I do, and it's funny how this starts to work out in our own life, and we start to see this in the Scripture. But I put my hand on the small of her back, right? The small of her back is where I put it, all right? All right? right not, not backside, the small of her back, all right? I'm not like some of you unregenerates. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, on the small of her back, and what we do is we look, and then I begin to kind of lead like this with my wife across the thing. Some of you might say that's ridiculous. Well, what I do, the reason I do that is because if there's a car coming by, I can push her right in front of that car and I can jump out of the way. Right? No, that's not true. I do that because I'm trying to look after her. I'm trying to protect her. 
When you're laying in bed, guys, at night, and you hear a crack of the glass, and you can see through the crack of your door a little flashlight kind of shimming around, uh, you don't sit there and say, honey, do you mind going in to check that out? <laughs> right? I-, I love what John Piper says in trying to teach us with this. He says, even if your wife was a black belt in karate, after you've tried to deter him, she may finish him off, the burglar off, with one kick to the solar plexus. But you'd better be unconscious on the floor. You're no man. He says, that's written on your soul, brother, by God Almighty. Big or little, strong or weak, night or day, you go up against the enemy first. That's what the role is. Now, we sit back, and I think that if you were, born, if you were raised in the South, like I was, that comes pretty natural to you. But what doesn't come so natural to you is the idea is that God calls us not only to physically protect them, but to be intentional about our spiritual protection for our family. And this is where I believe that many of us men are just so far off base. Do you understand that you have a, that the chance of somebody breaking into your home and trying to burglarize your home is really minimal, that that's actually going to happen? If it does, you need to step up. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible says that there is a roaring lying, lion going about seeking to devour your family, your children, your home, and your wife to devour their souls. And that doesn't have a chance of happening. That's happening each and every day that the devil's coming and trying to attack. They want the souls of your family and men to protect them physically and not spiritually is to do nothing more than to air condition their train to hell. That's it. And what you and I need to do is we need to begin not looking through physical eyes but spiritual eyes and understand really what is at chance and that the devil would have nothing more than to take your wife and to take your children and torment them for all eternity in a never-ending blazing hell. He would love it. And yet you and I are standing back going, well, at least, I provide, at least I'm taking care of them physically. What are we to do? Well, we protect them in two ways. First of all, we protect them through prayer. At the beginning of every day, the greatest thing you could do is go and realize that you can't fight this war with your fists. You have to fight this war on your knees before God. And you need to go. And these are the kind of prayers you need to do. If they're not saved, you need to call and wrestle and fight and call out to God and say, save my children, save my wife. If they're already saved, then you pray prayers like this. God, sanctify them. You begin to pray out and you say, lead them not into temptation, but deliver them from evil. You are, you are the first defense there, interceding with God to protect those children, to protect that family from the devil. Do you got that? And you're praying for them. You do it silently. You do it every day consistently, but you also do it out loud. One of the greatest things that you could do is allow your children, men, to hear you pray for them. When we pray, most of the time, for years, they're getting older now. They're starting to understand, but a lot of times they never really understood what we were praying for them. My little five-year-old, we sit there and say, God, we just pray in the name of Jesus that you would draw them, that you would call them, that you would lead them, that you would see how wonderful you are, that you would understand how sinful they are. And you're sitting there going, Mike, are you preaching? No, I'm praying. Jesus, I pray for my little girls. I pray for the little boy. Jesus, that they will be pure, that they will live a pure life, that they won't find their, their, their meaning in some man or some woman somewhere, but in the person of the Son of God, and they will use everything about themselves for your glory, God. Does a five-year-old understand that? No. 
but we pray it out and let them hear it because they know what God has planned for their life. Say it out. That's how you begin to protect them, through prayer. But you also protect them from boundaries. One of the most difficult things within our home today is this, is your home is being attacked, guys. If you have any kind of spiritual pulse at all, you know that the majority of garbage that comes in over television, over stereo, over radio, over whatever, is garbage. And the truth of the matter is, the reason that some of us men have not put our foot down on some of that is because we enjoy that garbage. And for us to say, hey, this is inappropriate for me and my house, you know that one of two things are going to happen. First of all, what may happen is you may not be able to watch that thing that feeds your flesh, and you're not going to like that. Or number two, you're going to say, don't do it, and then you're going to try to watch it when they don't do it, and your kids are going to see you as a hypocrite. So you just say, hey, you know what, let's just, uh, everything. No, you and I need to set standards for the home. Your wife should not be there all the time having to fight all these fights with, with your children about what they can watch, about what they shouldn't watch. You set the precedence, man. You set the precedence about the music. I remember watching the Super Bowl. And in the Super Bowl, all of a sudden, you know, the halftime show, people are like, man, I like the halftime show. That's good. I was hearing some ladies, Christian ladies, talk about the half. Did you see Madonna? Did you see our pair? Did you find out what was all going on? Let me tell you what happened during the halftime show in our thing. Shut the thing off. Because what my little girls are going to do is they're going to see Madonna right there, and they're going to say, man, that's what life is all about. Sweetie, that's not what life is all about. It's not about glorifying yourself. It's about glorifying Jesus, which means you even need to set the precedence for what your little girls are wearing. Man, I, I mean, I sit back, and I see little girls, and I'm not trying to scope them out or anything else like that, but I just see some things that girls are wearing and how short their skirts are or shorts are and what, what, how tight-fitting their clothes are and everything else like that. And I just sit there, and I'm like, man, where's, where's that girl's daddy? And there that wife is in there, man, just toiling, fighting like crazy with that daughter. You shouldn't wear this. You shouldn't wear that. Young girls, listen to me very carefully. To try to expose the body. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be tasteful and beautiful and all those wonderful things. But when you sit there and try to accentuate the body and let the body show, that came from the fall. That's going against us realizing that now we must be covered and we need the covering of a righteous God. What we want to do is we want to dress in a way that people will not be attracted to those physical things, but will be attracted to your speech and the spirit that lives within you. That's the beauty. That's what God wants from you. And men, that's what you got to teach your daughter. Is it going to be easy? It's never easy. We have a, a six-year-old, and it's, it's not easy. It's six, for heaven's sake. But you know what we do? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But the men need to be able to set those boundaries for their home. Do you see that, guys? Do you see that's how we protect them? We protect them both physically, spiritually. Spiritually, we protect them through prayer and through boundaries. One more thing. The second thing is, is not only uh, do, is he intentional in his protection of us, but he's also protective in, he's also intentional in our provision, in his provision for us, how he provides. Now, notice, if you will, in verse 28, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does 
the church. Now, those two words, nourishes and cherishes, this is where I get that provision from. The word nourishes in the word of God simply means to provide caringly. And most of the times that it's used within the New Testament, it is used to describe the, raise, uh, the testament of raising children and providing for their every need. Likewise, the word cherishes there speaks of tender care. It, it, it refers to a parent's willingness to do whatever is at need to be able to meet that child's needs. Now, let me ask you this. How did Jesus Christ provide in that way? Or does Jesus Christ provide in that way? Man, I'll tell you what. I'll look around, and there's no, not a whole lot of starving people in this place. Why? Because Jesus Christ provides. He provides us food. He provides us shelter. He provides us something to drink. Many of us, he's, most of us, he's provided a job. God just provides. He's in the constant providing business. Now, you and I sin by complaining about what he provides for us most of the time. That's a whole other sermon, Right? But what does he do? He's faithful even when we are not faithful. But he also provides for us spiritually. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, says, uh, uh, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. There's not one spiritual or physical blessing that you need that God hasn't already provided for, that Christ hasn't. He's the perfect provider. And so what God calls us for, you, you men, you and I, is for you to come and provide for our families. How? Once again, both physically and spiritually. Now let's say a couple things, because I know these are t- touchy subjects. I believe that it is the husband's primary role to be the breadwinner of the home, based on the word of God. He created him, but go back to Genesis. Right there, he was supposed to till the ground. The curse was on his area of responsibility. That was work and the providing of the home. But with that said, let me suggest something. I'm not suggesting at all that a woman can't work without outside the home. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that at all. And I'm not suggesting that there might be some times within your own life that the woman might need to be the breadwinner for a period of time. I know my wife and I, we had to struggle through this biblically. This is how this works. You learn this, and then you apply it to your life. When we were going off to seminary, um, I sat there, and I was really struggling because my wife said, here's the plan. You study. I'll work. And, and that's, how it's, that, that's what we could do. And I was like, are you sure you're okay with that? Are you sure you're all right? She said, I've got no problem, but understand, I'm get, you got three years, buddy. You can do whatever you want with those three years. But if it takes you five years to graduate, I'll give you three years, then it's baby time, all right? And, and so she, she came, and we were able to work that out. That may happen at periods of time. There might be a man who physically just cannot work anymore, and I understand that, or his inability, but he is uniquely built and uniquely given the responsibility to do what? To provide for that family. Now, guys, you know as well as I know that there are a lot of things that are going on in our economy today. You know that. You know a lot of people are losing jobs. You know a lot of people are doing that, that sort of thing. But here's, here's what I would share with you. I have seen people, and it's been a number of people all through my life, that there, we see one thing that really keeps a man from providing for his family, and here it is, his pride. I've seen man after man after man after man who might lose a job, and then he turns around, and this is what he says. Here's a perfectly good job over here. He says, it doesn't make enough. It just doesn't make enough. You don't understand, I've got all this skill, I've got all this experience, I've got all this ability, I've got all these other things, that just doesn't pay enough. And so what happens is the wife stays with that pressure working as he's sitting there waiting for this fantastic job to be able to come along and supply. And that's wrong. It's your responsibility. You say, Brother Mike, what are you saying? I'm saying 
that if you have to scrape gum off the bottom of park benches to make a living to put food on your table and pay the bills, that's what you do. I don't care how many doctorate degrees you have. That's what you do. Now, we understand that the Bible says even there carefully in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the face and is worse, worse than an unbeliever. That's how integral you working and supplying for your family is. Now, with that said, there's the physical needs. We provide for physical needs, but there's also providing for spiritual needs. And here's the truth that a lot of men have done. You've set your path in a career path so much that you are that man that says, my main, pro- my, my main priority is to provide physically the physical needs for my family. And you know what? Some of you have done a great job. Some of you have actually done an overly great job that you actually found yourself in sin again because all you've really done is you've worked so much and worked so hard that you've neglected the spirituality of your, li- of your family. So you're providing for them the food that they need to eat physically, but you're not providing for them the spiritual food that they need. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now you sit there and say, and this is, this is a struggle for a lot of men. They sit there and say, how much is too much? Should I take this job or not? And I say, well, if you take that job that is giving you more money and everything else and it's calling more time, can you still fully, honestly do your responsibility to feed spiritually your family? Can you do the both? And if they say no, then I sit there and say, man, don't take that job. Take the one below it. Just be content where you are. Don't, 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 don't at the expense uh, of your own kids' spirituality and family's spiritual health, provide for them just physically and not spiritually. So this is where, this meant, let's be honest, this is where we get scared. This is where we begin to become intimidated. This is where we sit there, and just like as Dan said the first service, at the end, he said, he said, man, we just don't really know what to do. We just don't know what to share. Let me explain something to you just very quickly. You can't teach what you don't know. You just can't teach what you don't know. You can't come alongside of your children and say, I'm going to be the spiritual leader and I'm going to feed you. The priority is on me. The responsibility is on me. I'm going to give you the word if you're not in the word yourself. You just can't do it. And so a lot of folks will sit there, and I remember hearing an illustration where I was actually in a seminary class, and a student raised his hand and asked a question, which I never did because I knew they would always blast you no matter what you asked. And so he raised his hand. He says, brother, he goes, look, man, he goes, I'm just trying to find the time to put some sermons together. How do you go about, uh, how, how do you go about determining what you're going to preach? How do you, how, how do you, you know, get, get that studying and know how, how, how to tell the people what they're supposed to know? And I thought, man, this is a bad question. This is not going to end well. And the, in, in, in the, 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 the uh, professor, in a very eloquent way, just told him and said, well, brother, there lies your mistake. He says, your problem is, is he goes, you study in order to preach. He goes, I preach because I study. He goes, you study to try to find something to say. That's your goal in and of itself. He says, I study the word of God because I love the word of God and I want to know what God says. And when I do that, I've always got something to preach. And what I would suggest for you as well, man, if you would just be in the word a little bit each and every day, learning the word of God and growing, allowing God to use that, that, that word of God for you to become a man of God, you'll always have something to say. You always have something to say for him. And so here's a couple of points of application. Let me just give this to you just very quickly. You know, 
I don't know about you, but I think when we begin to give all this application and everything, man, there's this feeling just kind of of guilt that kind of overwhelms. And, you know, that's okay. We can work with that. We can work through that. But the question is, what do we do with it? Do we just sit there and suppress it and go on and go out to lunch and go, whew, that never happened? Or would you sit there and let the conviction of the Holy Spirit move our hearts and for us to sit there and say, I've got to get this right before God. And for you men to sit there and for me to sit there and say, I will take the initiative. I will take the initiative to be the leader, spiritual leader of my home. And secondly, I will be intentional about it. I will begin to plan to take the steps each and every day that I have to do to be able to feed and to protect my family spiritually. I will do that. Now, let me give you some practical application. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like one of those where if a new month is coming, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start now. Beginning of the month, here's a goal. I'm a goal-oriented kind of guy. I don't know if you guys are. Now, I would love for you to begin today. Pray for your wife. Read the word with your wife to do all those kind of things. That would be fantastic. It would be awesome. But let me tell you something to gear up. I think that you should start now. But here's a wonderful goal. Next month, we're doing something called Simply Live Month. It says live simply so that others might simply live. It's a missions month. And what we do is we ask our folks to live as simply financially as they possibly can. How many of you have done this with us before over the last two years? All right, quite a few of you. A lot of you have not. But what we do is this. We sit there and we have some mission goals that I'm going to cover with you next week that are here locally, needs locally, and around the world, specifically in Africa, where we're trying to get the gospel over there as much as you can. To be able to spread the gospel, here's the bottom line, it just takes money from God's people. So what we're going to be doing is, for that month, we live as simply as we possibly can. We try not to go out to eat. We try to eat as little as we possibly can. We try to drive around as little as we possibly can to save gas. We try to make sure that the air is at the appropriate temperature to make sure that those electric bills are as low as they possibly can. We try to do away with all kinds of out kind of uh, entertainment, going, going to a movie theater, doing whatever, whatever else. We live simply as we possibly can. Uh, then what we do is after our ties and our regular bills, whatever is left for that month, just whatever is left, we take it and we give it to God. None of it's going to remain here. All of it's going to be given out. We're not taking any of it in for ourselves. We'll take it in, and then we give every last dime out to be able to give to those needs in our local community and to propagate the gospel around the world. All of it goes out. You guys with me on that? And so what happens is, here's a perfect time, men, for you to get on board and you begin to lead your families. For you to sit there and say, as for me and my house, we're going to make a kingdom difference because what we're going to do is every penny that's left over that we don't need is going to the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So men, you could begin by letting everybody know you got a week and a half. Hey guys, you got a week and a half to eat as much as you possibly can. <laughs> Do whatever you can because it's, it's done when we get into March. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just to set it up. And men, here's what I'm going to ask you to do during that month. Not only set that precedence for your family, but here's five things you can do. Number one, begin the day by praying for your family. Very simple. Just pray for your family. Wake up five minutes early, ten minutes, just, just pray for them. First thing. Simple, isn't it? Number two, set a daily time to spend in God's word. For some folks, that might be the morning. For some folks, that might be at lunchtime. For some folks, it doesn't matter what time it is. You just set a little bit of time to take your Bible or take a devotional, a Christian devotional, and just read through it, meditate on it, think about it, and that's it. Okay? Number three, set a daily time to lead the family to read the Bible together. Look, you may not know a whole lot that's going on, 
But maybe you can get a little devotional, like Dan's going to show you at the very end, that you could take and you could, it will teach you, and you can lead your family through it through the month of March. Here's the fourth thing. Look for opportunities to talk about spiritual things. Just talk about spiritual things. When you leave the church, just turn to your children and just begin to ask them about what they learned and what's going on. Maybe during their week, ask them, hey, have you, have you prayed to God? How's your walk with God going? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how much our lives would change if this was the kind of conversations that begin to go on that our husbands begin to initiate? Are y'all with me? Amazing. But guys, it's so sad that that's just not something that naturally happens. We need to be intentional about this. And five, make sure your family is consistently worshiping in the house of God next month. Just sit there and go, man, we're going to go and worship. We're going to come to the house of God. Make sure that you're the one that's not sitting there going, hey, let's go, guys. Or, or, you know, just sit back and letting your wife try to, you know, do the cattle drive to get the kids in the car. You be the one that sits there and goes, listen, guys, we're going. We need to be ready. We need to get to the house of God. So I am challenging you men and you families to do the same thing. Let me finish with one last thing. Each year, there's been a little of me that I've been very impressed because a couple have come to me and said, Mike, this has completely changed the way we live. Completely changed the way we live. We can't just do it for a month. We're going we're gonna to change the way we live and make some radical changes so that we could give more for the propagation of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you what happens, and it's very discouraging to me. As I begin to talk with, with, with some of you and talk with everything, it's just very clear that people don't really take it seriously that month. Because we begin to talk, and there's this kind of laughing, well, yeah, well, we just kind of decided that uh, we were just going to go to Longhorn and the 10 of us, and we were just going to eat. We just, you know, but we got a couple dollars left over. That's not what we're calling for. We're calling for you and to me to literally sit there and say, God, we're going to live as simply as we can. And out of those paychecks that I get over the month of March, whatever is left over, I'm entrusting you for the propagation of the gospel to make your name great amongst the nations. I want to challenge you with that. And why do we do it? Why do we do it? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ took the initiative and he intentionally took steps to an old rugged cross, gave up his life, and he died to protect and to provide for you and to me. Do you know that Savior? Do you know that Savior? Jesus, we come to you.